This podcast, number 858, with author April Rennie about her new book, Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change, is brought to you by Don Wiener, the founder of DLP Real Estate Capital and the author of a new book entitled Building and Lead Organization, The Blueprint to Scaling a High-Growth, High-Profit Business. In my interview with Don, we speak about the elite execution system, a structure he built to drive and manage an organization in measurable ways. The system drives all the components of business together to achieve alignment and balance. If you want to learn more about Don's new book, Building and Lead Organization, please visit his website at www.dlpelite.com. And now for our featured podcast with author April Rennie, about her new book, Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And joining us from Portland, Oregon today is April Rennie. And April, do you have like a a copy of your new book that's going to come out or anything that you can show the audience or no oh, goodness i should i i actually have lots of pdfs and whatnot but i didn't bring well you know what we're going to be talking about her new book called flux eight superpowers for thriving in constant change and if there can there is never a more timely topic than this right now given our world and the way in which it's been moving and the constant changes that we're having. Um, And just recently now, you know, breakthroughs uh, talking about um, from the Pentagon, even UFOs now with, with reliable press this time. So we'll actually see what happens. (laughs) It's, but April, I'm going to let our listeners know a little bit about you. April Rennie is equal parts, global authority, advocate, ally, and adventurer. She sees trends early, understands their potential, and helps others do the same. She's a global citizen who brings insights, access, and perspective to companies, governments, investors, and organizations. Um, She holds a JD from Harvard Law and an MA in international business and finance from Fletcher School at Tufts University and a BA summa cum laude from Emory University. She's a Fulbright Scholar and also studied at Oxford University, Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and European University Institute. Um, Other memberships include, she's a young global leader at the World Economic Forum, where she leads the Sharing Economy Working Group and is a member of the Global Futures Council for the Future of Mobility and Urbanization. Now, the best part, um, she is quite a yoga enthusiast, a hiker, has been from the Himalayans to uh, all over the world, extended solo travel, and she knows how to find the best cinnamon roll, it says. And don't compare her on handstands when you go to her website. You're going to see there's probably no one better than April. Well, April, thanks for taking the time to talk about your new book, um, which comes out. What's the exact date that this is going to be breaking for the public? August 24th. All right. So we're doing a little pre-promotion here for this book. Uh, It won't release till August 24th, but I'm going to tell everybody that they should go to your website if they really want to plug into you. It's April Rennie, A-P-R-I-L-R-I-N-N-E.com. And that will be on our blog as well. But go up there, sign up. She's got a club you can join, and I've been getting her newsletters now for about a week and really appreciate the content that's coming out. So thank you, April. Pleasure. So look, you're, in your introduction of this book, you mentioned that humans really struggle with change. Um, you know, I was talking to somebody about this just the other day uh, that either MIT or Harvard or something did a book called Immunity to Change. And I remember reading it many, many years ago. Um, And then there were a lot of studies around that. You know, people who had like heart attacks, the doctors would tell them to go change behavior. And then 98% of them would never change that behavior. Um, But especially um, change that we do not choose. Now, anybody could say that 
most of the change that we get is something that we didn't choose other than maybe moving someplace else that we chose. And in your book and in your TEDx talk, you talk about losing both of your parents in an automobile accident. And what I'm curious about is, you know, when you talk so passionately about that from the TEDx talk, it really changed the trajectory of your life. How did it change the trajectory of your life? Yeah, sure. So thank you. And thank you for having me today. And thank you know, everyone who's, who's listening. Um, it's interesting. So when I was 20 years old, I think that's a key piece. I was 20 when both of my parents died in a car accident. I was in college. Um, I was actually a junior. I was studying overseas. So I was halfway around the world and I received a phone call. Um, now at that point, I had never been to a funeral. I had never lost a pet. I had all my grandparents were living like death had not touched me. I I was very blessed. I did not know what it was. And all of a sudden I got this phone call saying that, you know, the two people that were at that point most important in my life were both gone. There was just this huge like moment where you just pause. And as I like to say, at that moment, um, whatever I thought my future was going to be like it changed. Let's just say it was not going to be that. I didn't know what it was going to be, but it was like everything that I thought mattered and the way that I thought the world worked, it just melted. And to be 20 was, it's a really interesting time. You know, I was old enough to be living on my own, studying, like I knew how to take care of myself big picture, but I was still very early into understanding my place in the world or my career or that sort of thing. And it was this real, you know, in retrospect, I can say it was a kind of sweet spot um, and I often joke now that um, I think what happened, well, I, I call this moment sort of my baptism into flux. Um, this is when I never would have imagined that I'd write a, a book about flux so many years later, but that's when my quest to better understand this change that we don't control, but that we have no choice but to work our way through began. And a lot of people, you might've heard, there's the saying like people we don't resist change. We resist being changed. We like the noun. We don't like the verb. I mean, but we love change. We opt into, we really struggle with the stuff we don't control. And so losing my parents, the way I like to frame it now in retrospect, it's kind of like I had a midlife crisis at the age of 20. And why I say that is the questions I was asking at 20, what really matters? If I were to die tomorrow, what should I do today? Um, what matters in terms of money versus relationships versus status, all that stuff. I was asking the same questions that I see people suffering from midlife crises, having crises today. Mm -hmm. And I share this because it just put me on a very different trajectory, a very different path, personally, professionally. Um, it was incredibly hard and the grief and just working through all of that. Um, but ultimately it gave me a different perspective on life and a different perspective on kind of Again, I don't want to sound morbid, but I still ask myself, if I were to die tomorrow, what would the world need me to do today? And it's typically a little bit, you know, counterintuitive or even provocative, even contrarian to, I think, a lot of what society tells us that we should be doing today. Yeah. So during that time, um, did you, or I should say since that time, and you've had a lot of time to contemplate um, finitude one's finitude, your finitude. Um, any epiphanies as a result of you going through this and for you, um, how you deal with your finitude? Oh, what a wonderful question. Um, so, well, and it's funny. I mean, there's a piece of this that relates to the book. So I don't want to give all of it. <laughs> there's a piece that's better shaped for for a little bit later, perhaps as we dig into some okay. of the book, but there have been, it's interesting. On the one hand, there have been many mm -hmm. um, kind of, I don't want to, epiphanies, ahas, and they happen at different points in life. Um, right. But really, I think it, it, a lot of it boils down to what are the things that drive me and, and what are the things that ground me and sort of make me, me, even when everything else changes. And sometimes but I think it changes your importance scale. I've had a lot of um, people pass this last year, uh, two brothers, um, uh, two friends. Uh, so I recognize the element of importance. You start to place different levels of importance on things. Now, you, 
you know, you state that the book is not about change management, nor um, one kind of change. Rather, it is about how we think about and relate to change, period, meaning period, end of sentence. Flux provides a refreshing, unconventional take on navigating change today and into the future. Uh, into the future. How would you advise the listeners who are out there today, whether they're working in a company or they're a mom or they're, you know, whatever they are, a grandma that listens to podcasts, how would you advise the listeners to alter the ways that they relate to change, alter the ways that they relate to change? Yeah. So, you know, at the very basic level, the first step is actually becoming aware of your relationship to change. And I think that's been one of the most interesting, I don't know that it's an aha, it certainly has been a consistent surprise to me, is actually how many, how few people, and again, myself included for much of my life, unless I was forced into it, so to speak, we don't actually pay that much attention to our relationships to change. We try to react to change. We try to cope with change. We try to manage change. But really understanding our relationship to change from the inside out is really, it's, it's, it's an interesting journey to start taking. And again, this inside out, I think inside personal growth, like understanding that whatever's happening in the external world, we can never, no person, no organization, fundamentally, no one can control what happens in the outside world. We like to think that we can, but in fairness, it's kind of an illusion of control that we seek. Mm -hmm. But, and so, and I, I spend a lot of time working with organizations, for example, around change management. And yes, change management matters and having a change strategy matters and all of that. But we spend on, in my experience, far more time and, and effort thinking about how do we, you know, how do we manage change? How do we invest in uncertainty and so forth? But we never stop to think, what is the mindset that I'm bringing to the table that's filtering these decisions? So for example, do you approach change from a place of hope or fear? Like that's not strategy, that's mindset. But we rarely ask those questions, certainly in a, in a business kind of setting. And so one of the things that I'm trying to help people and organizations do is to reframe, this isn't just I mean, you might think of 2020 as reacting to a bunch of change and historically, like something changes, we react to it. But we know that we are in for a future that is full of constant change. Mm -hmm. Reacting is not going to get us. I mean, you can react and it's going to be exhausting. What we're looking at is a shift from just reacting to change to fundamentally reshaping our relationship to it. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is the mindset shift that's required to accept and lean into constant relentless change, you know, it's non-trivial and it's not what a lot of us, I think, are hardwired to do or certainly not taught to do. We are taught that we can actually control and manage change. And I think 2020 was a great example of how and why we can't, but I don't think that 2020 was a fluke. I think 2020 is sort of a data point of a longer term shift that is going to be more and more change, a faster pace of change, et cetera, and that, that we need to really buckle up for a different way of looking at change, talking about it, relating to it. Um, and that's what makes me really excited. The first step, though, is to become aware of yeah. what I've just described. Well, I think that one of the things that the body does, and um, I think biologically that we've been cut out for, um and to some degree, fortunately, and another degree, not so fortunate, is like this state of homeostasis. You know, we look to come back to this state of um, tranquility, peace, calm, you know, wherever it is. Even when you look at just your heart rate or, you know, you go and exercise and you come back, you know, the body is seeking to come back to this normalcy. And I think people have used this word a lot lately as, you know, we're now starting to take off the masks. This interview is um, May the 17th. We're seeing states lighten up. And everyone is saying, oh, it's going to come back to normal. Well, the reality is I don't believe normal as we know normal will ever be normal again. And you state that the flux mindset has several essential elements, including core values, comfort with paradox, and the ability to see uncertainty from a place of hope 
rather than fear. And you have some charts in the book that compare and contrast. Can you please explain how our mindsets neurologically get formed in the role that anxiety plays? And what are the three steps for the theory of flux uh, that reveals the relationship between the old and the new scripts um, that we can write for ourselves? And what I, I like the term that you're using, you know, this has been used a lot, you know, we're like actors on a play, you got to write the new script. So what is the new script that we're writing? Yeah, and there are several questions in there. And actually, this is a good There's moment. There's three, to pause. actually. Yeah. <laughs> so, so pause me at any time because I might run on a bit and I'll, I'll try to keep them brief. But but there's a lot in what you've just asked. And this is also a good moment to pause and say, um, so if you go to my website that you provided, aprilwinnie.com, you're going to see me and doing a lot of handstands and and what I do and travels and that sort of stuff. It's 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 a fun site. Yes. Um, the site to learn more about what we're about to talk about is actually fluxmindset.com. And that is the, the site that's really the book, the, the superpowers, the mindset, the stuff we're going to like all of the, the content around this concept of flux, you'll find at that site. Now the two sites speak to each other, but I just wanted to call that out because if you're more interested in flux, then head to flux mindset. If you're more interested in in me and handstands, then head to the head to April. Well, Lee. hopefully they'll be interested um, in both. I hope so. They'll exactly. go to both sites. So yes, you're exactly. absolutely right. They do play on one another. So exactly. we will put that in the blog. Okay. So back to the um, you know how do we think? How do we react to change? And you know this is with a caveat that. I am not a neuroscientist. I am not a psychologist. I'm bringing a layperson's view to this, but I am doing so as a futurist, kind of understanding the where are we heading, future of X, Y, Z. Um, I'm doing this as a human who, as you've heard, is just suffers, has suffered a lot of my life from um, anxiety, but recognizing it changes an emotional very, you know, it's heavily charged with emotions. Um, and then I'm also doing this just with this perspective of globally. Like, as I like to say, I've not met a single individual or organization or culture that hasn't and doesn't really struggle with change. But in in that process, we all developed coping mechanisms and there's a lot we can learn from one another. So back to the neurophysiology, um, I can give a, a brief sort of description when we think about it, you know, our brain um, or neurobiology, I guess is the, the better term, um, the human brain, we have or the human body, we have two major nervous subsystems that work in tandem. So you have the sympathetic nervous system and parasympathetic. And the sympathetic is what we think of as fight, flight, um, or freeze, right? And it it sort of prepares the body for action. It's the thing that gets us like change happens and we are ready to respond. Parasympathetic um, is the what's known as sometimes the rest and digest function. So its, it's um, purpose is to calm down the body. And, and these two parasympathetic and parasympathetic, they work in tandem and they normally like, that's, that's what we do. So I, at the risk of oversimplifying, you know, if you're being chased by a tiger, your sympathetic nervous system takes over. And if you're meditating, the parasympathetic nervous system takes over, but for most human activities, they work in tandem. Now here's the piece about change. So our ever accelerating world. So more change, faster pace of change. This throws these systems out of balance. And specifically, we are, are, we are hardwired to detect and sense change all around us, but we're treating it more as if we're being chased by a tiger, whereas we're not. But what's happening, so we're not being chased by tigers, but our bodies are responding as if we are. And if we have too many perceived tigers, which is like the relentless change of every day or every week, we lose, we start to lose that ability to calm down, right? And this happens not just individually. This happens organizationally. This happens societally. Um, you know, you think about the anxiety that creeps in, whether it's careers, family, health, well-being, societally, you know, inequality, climate, social injustice, like it's just relentless. Each and every one of these trigger points can lead to anxiety because these nervous systems were thinking everything is a tiger. And if all I've just described is a tiger, our parasympathetic nervous system just completely goes offline. It doesn't know what to do. So there is a kind of rewiring that we're um, looking at. And when I say, you know, but not, to, not to be cliche, I mean, wouldn't you concur 
that that state of anxiety is being caused by, and I know this might sound cliche-ish, but it's so true, if your mind is in the dead past or the imagined future and you're not in the now, you literally are creating this anxiety by not staying present. And and I think that, you know, no matter if you think that's an Eastern philosophy or whatever you want to do, there's no more truth to that statement. That, in other words, that is a true statement in my world, right? It, it just, what it is what it is. Because you can't control what's going to happen tomorrow. And yesterday has already happened. So what are you going to do about it? And if you allow that to tug at you mentally, you literally are trying to go back and fix something or move forward and predict something. And kind of impossible. Exactly. And the, <laughs> yes, I was just having a conversation about this most days, you know, in some capacity. <laughs> but um, yesterday it was the um, the quote or just the sense that if you're depressed, you're often living in the past. Mm-hmm. If you're anxious, you're often living in the future. Mm-hmm. And if you actually are lucky to feel at peace, chances are very good you're living in the present. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, not to foreshadow too much, but the ability to let go of both the past and and actually the future. And this is a little contrarian, but you know, I one of the eight flux superpowers is to let go of the future. And people are like, are you kidding me? That's like giving up. That's failure. How could I do that? I'm like, no. I am actually saying we need to be able to get out of our own ways to let go of a particular future that must play out right. in order to let a better future emerge. And you know, that's, it's hard for us. And to be clear, and I, I know you get this, you know, this doesn't happen. Gaining, opening a flux mindset does not happen overnight. This is practice. This is discipline. This is really going deep. But again, beginning our relationship to change from the inside out, recognizing that if we figure out the inner stuff, not that automagically the external stuff like is resolved, but we have a clarity around what really matters. We have a sense of rootedness and groundedness and orientation for right. how to respond appropriately. Well, yeah. you know, the guru's in the mirror. It's you. The thing is, is that you have a table in the book that compares and contrasts this old mindset to the flux mindset. Can you take a, some of those things that are listed in the table? Because I think it's really appropriate. We don't have a table right now, but Maybe we'll take one from the book and insert it into this video at this point. Um, but just take a few of those that would give people an idea because I think those tables, when they're put in books, sometimes when you look at the dog-eared pages, it's those things that are the reminders because it's like, okay, here's the old mindset, here's the new mindset. Very easy to understand. Yeah. And um, and I realized I didn't I didn't actually mention the the old mindset and flex mindset thus far. So I'll do that um, now and also the old script and the new script. So take a step back. And, um, you know, this is one of my favorite things to, to talk about, which is this whole notion of a script. And when I say a script, it's sort of like a narrative. It's the story of your life. Right. Each and every one of us has a script, whether or not you realize it. And everyone's script is different because each of us is different. But the script is how, what kind of life are you living? How did you end up living it? And what are the kinds of goals and expectations you're going after and so forth? And we write our script, you know, it starts really young. And I think our parents or the people that raised us, the culture in which we were raised, um, the people that were important to us. All of those had a big influence on what our script is. But, you know, we come into adulthood and we say, okay, I've got my script. This is what I want my life to be. And I think for many of us, this is how we look at, you know, how do we describe our life story? How do we think about our career and expectations and goals? And how do we measure success and what's leadership and power and all of those sorts of things? And for many of us, again, myself included, you know, for example, I was raised to believe that success was found at the top of a ladder, right? You're going to climb some kind of corporate ladder, or work really hard and get to the top and that leadership was at the top. You were told that, you know, for the most part, other people set, set expectations that I was expected to follow. I wasn't necessarily setting my own expectations. Um, money, power, privilege, these were all types of success. Um, I was taught 
you know, as a child, and I think many of us are like, don't trust other people. Certainly don't trust strangers. Um, change was scary. Change was often threatening. Change was the big unknown. And again, this is my experience. Each of us, there's a series of questions in the book that you kind of go through to better understand where does, where, where was your mindset set? And what I want to, to tease out, and again, this gets a little bit tricky because I've lived and worked around the world. I, I want to be very sensitive to different cultures, different perspectives. Nothing is better or worse than anything else. We just all have these interesting scripts. The challenge that I'm finding is that in the vast majority of people and places that I, that I talk to, our scripts are not that fit for a world in flux. They are built by and large for an industrial era where it was about climbing the corporate ladder, study, work, retire. We can come back to that. That whole linear career path is sort of breaking as we speak. Um, do not trust others. I can tell you that we are fueling right now. We're in the midst of a trust crisis and we've designed our systems from a basic assumption of mistrust of the average individual, et cetera, et cetera. And so what's happening more and more, and we see this especially amongst young people, but I would say, you know, many adults, myself included, fall into this as well, which is we look at what we were taught growing up. And now as we look towards the future, the script that we were given doesn't really align with where the world is or certainly where the world is heading. Young people are like, you taught me X and now I'm ready to enter the world. And I am, there's just a disconnect between what I want and what I think is important. And I mean, certainly this is, we can look at young people today who have grown up in an era of climate change, intolerance, lots of change. We can come back to that because in some respects, younger people are better equipped for this world in flux. But the systems, structures, playbooks we have are really old and arcane and largely outdated. So the challenge, and you know, just as, as one example, I think the, that, that sense of climbing a corporate ladder and successes at the top. I'm Some not people saying. refer to this as the Piscean Age. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that, you know, look, I agree with you. The systems are outdated. The struggles, these scripts that have been written, they're definitely um, not as pliable, right? The way people, oh, you said, well, study hard, get a job, retire. You know, I get that. The reality, though, is when you look at what you talk about, these eight superpowers, it helps people who who have an old script rewrite a new one. The 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 other thing is, and the wrong, wrong word is kind of imbibe because that's to drink, but you constantly need to be taking a drink from the fountain to actually remember that this is where you are. Does that make sense? In other words, it's it's not like, well, I'm going to take a drink out of the water bottle and then I'm going to be cured. It's you you have to work at this, right? It it isn't like it's just set it down, everything will be okay. I took the pill, everything's going to change tomorrow. It isn't. No, um, it's sort of one and done. Like yeah. We're good. Not yeah. at all. This is why. It's not like the vaccine. We got it in our arm. Okay, great. Now we're good. No. It's not going to happen here. <laughs> it's back to change immunity, right? I've yeah. had conversations about change vaccines. Yeah. Like, couldn't we just have an injection and be good with change or exactly. have change stop or whatever? Exactly. And that's not the case. And it's funny because my editor, my publisher, and I spent a lot of time thinking through this notion of a superpower, but that really... When you think about a superpower, and in this case, a flux superpower, it does result, it's not something you're just, that drops from the sky and you're naturally gifted and off you go. This is a practice, it is a discipline, and it's something that you will continue to do throughout your life. Because, you know, I, we, I think we see it a lot, um, I'm going back a little bit and forward a little bit on this, but I want to be really clear, like, what's funny, I was working on this book long before lockdown and a pandemic. I was looking at a world in flux and then 2020 happened and people were like, oh, world in flux, like welcome to my life. Now is it's interesting that we are talking today because as we start to reemerge and a little bit of reopening and in fairness, we are not done with this pandemic at all. We've got India, we've got South America, we've got hotspots in lots of places and a great fear, not just of variants, but of 
vaccine inequities. And we, we, we are far from in the clear on this. So the flux continues. It just looks a little different. Um, nonetheless, as we reopen here in North America, for example, um, all of those big changes, all those big things we were worried about two years ago or, you know, a year and a half before pandemic, they're still there. <laughs> the flux that I was interested in before is still there. And in some ways it's been exacerbated. And, you know, you look to the future and I hope, you know, fingers and toes crossed. It is, I hope it is not another pandemic or anything close to what we've experienced this past year. But we know that seismic shifts are ahead. You know, I think automation and climate, not to go too meta, like those are two of the hugest, the biggest ones out there. We know that automation will impact 100% of jobs in some way. I didn't say eliminate, but affect. We know that climate will have implications individually, organizationally, societally that we quite, we really haven't wrapped our arms around yet. Um, so this notion of a world in flux, it's going to continue to play out for the rest of our lives. So we need to develop this practice and this discipline of learning how to flux better and plan on doing it for the rest of our lives as well. But what's exciting in that is if you can figure out and or embrace doing that, the future looks really bright, right? Well, the future I mean, is, but I think mm-hmm. that, you know, if you look at from uh, the turn of the century, let's just say, you know, you're talking about climate change, uh, you're talking at CO2 emissions and the use of nitrogen fertilizers and depletion of the soils and all these various things that I'm involved in, like you are. Um, the reality is, you know, and you know this, it's the speed at which it's changed in one lifetime now, meaning mine, I'll be 67 in July. I've seen a lot of change. Now, I don't think the prior two generations to me saw as much change, right, uh, as I've seen. The question is, I see it going in a good direction. Now, the, the key is that we do have some big hurdles, and I agree with you on that, and you said not to go into the the micro here, but I think it's important because those are some of the two key issues you mentioned that we have to get our hands around and it needs to be embraced by everybody. Everybody listening needs to embrace those two, right? Automation, which is going to change the way we work. Um, Climate change, which could potentially be catastrophic if we don't get our hands around it. Um, and then the food system, I would say, you know, you might as well add the food system to that because that is a big one as well. Um, but those are, those are big ones. Um, I just got done reading, uh, Bill Gates's new book and, uh, I thought it was great. Now you have eight flux superpowers that you've identified as part of the flux mindset. How do these superpowers help us see change in a new way, develop new responses to change and ultimately restate, reshape our relationship to change. Yeah, so I want to use what you just you what you just mentioned as a kind of segue to this question, but go back to it just for a moment. And one of my favorite sayings is that there has never sorry, the the, the pace of change has never been as fast as it is today, and yet it likely will never again be this slow. And, you know, you let that sink in for a minute. And on the one hand, it's kind of exciting. And it's also like terrifying, right? So just for everyone listening, think about how fast you've had to be racing or running or responding, reacting to change, right? And now I tell you, okay, however fast you think you're running right now, however much you think you're responding to and dealing with and however overwhelmed and exhausted you are. Run slow. I love your statement. Well, this is as slow as it's ever going to be for you. You're going to need to run faster moving forward and not faster tomorrow, faster than tomorrow next year, faster, 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 because you look throughout human history, the pace of change is increasing. And, you know, easy data point, right? The first industrial revolution took a hundred years to fully play out. Now we're in the so-called fourth industrial revolution. I mean, it's playing out in a matter of years, you know, within less than a decade kind of thing. Wow. How does the human brain and body just comprehend and digest and not just react, but again, relate to these massive changes? 
So yes, you've just hit on one of the flux superpowers, but I wanted to go back and sort of connect it. So the eight flux superpowers fundamentally challenge the old script. They are superpowers for relating to change that are fit for a world in flux. Because going back to what I was saying before around the old script and new script, and I deliberately didn't define the new script per se, other than that it's fit for a world in flux, because just like each of us has our own old script, each and every one of us gets to write our own new script. The exciting and important thing is that we are writing it. We are the author of it, as opposed to, by and large, other people were the authors of our old script, right? They set expectations. We're expected to meet them. Society says do X. And I'm not saying that you basically say buck society. Society does have wisdom. But what I'm saying is when change hits, if you're living a life in which your expectations have been set by others, change really rattles you in a way that if you're actually living a life in which you've defined your goals and metrics and expectations, and you may need to change them, but you actually have the agency to do so, that changes everything. So I think of the the eight flux superpowers in many ways. People, lots of people have told me they're contrarian, they're um, counterintuitive, they are atypical. Uh, but I take that all as compliments, and that's what people typically intend. Is like these are fresh. It's a fresh perspective, and so one of them is run slower, and right. that is. In a world with an ever faster pace of change, you need to be able to slow your own pace of change to truly thrive, not just survive, thrive, flourish, etc. Um, I can go through all eight if you want, but I think we're going to dig into a couple more um, moving forward. We are. There was, there was do you believe? Thing- do you have a feeling, April, that um, you talk? I use the term. I'm just going to say this: compression for expansion. You know, it feels almost like there's a compression going on and we're feeling the pressure of this compression, um, almost like it's trying to go through a very small, narrow passageway so that the expansion could occur on the other side. I know that sounds kind of strange, but in reality, I think that's a feeling a lot of people get is uh, the compression before the uh, expansion. It's almost like birthing a baby through the canal, right? Yes, I would also ask a question. Um, I think there, I think a lot of people feel compressed and a lot of that can often show up as exhaustion, overwhelmation, that sort of thing. The question I have and to use, how long is the birth canal? How long is the tunnel? Because if we have an ever faster pace of change, I don't see a way in which we keep compressing, compressing, running faster, 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 faster. And then we know that more change is going to be lumped on top of that and we need to run faster against that too. I don't see that moment in which we expand unless we take the initiative. And here I can say control because for all the things we can't control in the outside world, the one thing we can control is how we respond. Unless we take control to actually create that moment in which or from which expansion can happen. But it's exponential. You know, you're seeing such massive growth in areas of technology and robots and all these kind of things and the speed at which computers are now being able to interact. You know, I've had Stephen Kotler on here. And I think the important thing is for people in the workplace that you're addressing, the employers are coming down and saying, we need more productivity. You know, and that's my next question. Productivity is an old word. Um, If you want to talk about an old script, that's probably about as old as it gets. But it says we're trying to be more productive. And you state that a lot of people have landed in the world of exhaustion with a resounding thud. And I would say that's true. But that is, you just mentioned, when you're allowing somebody else to dictate what you're doing, that's what's going to happen. Now, that the world of consumerism thrives by making sure we never see ourselves as enough. How do you turn the ego-driven message that persists in our minds that we are enough, that everything is enough versus I've got to have more, I've got to buy more, I've got to be more, I'm, I, you know, that is, I'm not saying it's inherent in everybody, but it's probably inherent in those people in those companies that you're addressing where they're looking at, hey, we've got to be, reinvent ourselves. We're, I mean, the word reinvention is every, we're going to reinvent ourselves. We're going to, we're going to be new. So tell me what you would tell them. 
Yeah. So there are a couple, there's a lot packed into this set of questions as well. So there are at least two of the superpowers um, to talk about here. One being uh, the ability to see what's invisible. So it comes back to how we see one, one another and ourselves. And the other is the superpower of knowing you're enough. And not, well, that, that includes knowing that you are enough, but knowing your Y-O-U-R as, um, as a sort of possessive. So that relates to sustainability. So let me start with the first. Each of us, again, in our script, we are taught to see some things and we are actively taught to not see other things. We see what's visible. We don't see what's invisible. But along with that not seeing what's invisible, we also become blind to some things that we really ought to see. Now, there's a section in the book that's on um, consumer culture. And, you know, I'm guessing some people listening here are working for uh, CPG companies. I mean, the consumerization of every aspect of our lives is a little bit disconcerting. That's an understatement. But I always like to remind people the root the original definition of the word to consume means to destroy as if by fire. So we have now consumerized and we speak of ourselves as consumers. We see one another as consumers. A lot of people believe that their purchasing decisions have a greater impact on society than their voting decisions. We have come to see one another for our as valuable because of what we can buy. Not for who we are, or how we can contribute to society necessarily. Yeah, but you're part of the economic forum, right? So sure. the young economic forum. And our whole monetary system is broken that way. It is based on if you don't consume, we don't produce. If we don't produce, we can't feed the people. And so I'm asking you this, because as a member of the World Economic Forum, Young Economic Forum, what are the minds that are out there now trying to do to reinvent how people sustain their lives without being consumers? Well, let me come back. I'm, I'm not saying, so there's, there's a piece of this, which is when we call ourselves consumers, we kind of sell ourselves short. We can call ourselves customers, allies, collaborators, contributors, human, humans with agency. I mean, there's all sorts of words that are more uplifting than when we say we're a consumer, we're effectively a destroyer. <laughs> so that's a whole other, that's a, that's a thread we don't necessarily need to go down. I want to come back because there's still this issue, the second superpower of knowing you're enough. And then there's also this question about the World Economic Forum, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm, we have become Related to this question around consumerism, we have also become hyper-obsessed with growth. And I am not here to say that growth is bad. Growth, growth can be good. Growth is a great thing. But since when did must grow at all costs overtake our focus on sufficiency, resiliency, and enough? Now, what's interesting, and this, this is a very recent phenomenon, right? This goes back, we can look at prior to the era of industrialization. Yes, we've, we've long had inequality and we've had people with more and people with less and that sort of thing. But this notion that it must be growth and growth at all costs, I like to say, I mean, this is what's burning our, we are burning ourselves out at an individual level and we're burning the planet up as a society, at a societal level. Now, I'm all for working hard and achieving your goals and, and having, quote unquote, more, but we have to ask if we know that we're burning up the planet, we know that we're living beyond planetary boundaries, period, and we've, but we've forgotten this concept of enough. And it's fascinating because when you go back into history and you look at etymology and ancient wisdom, et cetera, and there's a lot of that in, in the book as well. We find that for the vast majority of human history, we lived very sustainably on this planet because we were focused on enough. Enough means enough to provide for you and your family. And it's always rooted around the household. It's not rooted around global domination. When we, when we reset what is, and this is, you know, it's an interesting exercise for people to undertake. Like, how do you define your enough? It's different than more. Um, you know, how do you extricate people from? That that well, position because I mean 
I think from an economic standpoint, and I'll wave this in because there's so much that you are addressing, which is just fantastic. But it's also, you know, you look at the amount of debt that one has, and they want to be responsible in service debt. So, you know, you look at, okay, well, that means then I have to make more money. And to make more money, I've got to do this. And the whole train starts again down the script because the script starts to just be in this endless circle. And people are saying, I'm a rat in a cage and I don't know how to get out of that script. (laughs) Exactly, exactly, exactly. And what I want to tease out here, and, you know, this is where I got to say, I'm, I'm not somebody who like typically welcomes debate. Like I'm, I'm sort of risk aver. I kind of like to be everyone happy, so to speak. When it comes to these flux superpowers and it comes to things like enough versus more and trust versus mistrust. I mean, there's, we can go through all of them. I am so excited to debate these because it really forces us to look at what in the world are we doing? It is, again, you're in a ha- on a hamster wheel. You're exhausted. You're running ever faster. It's expen- The more you have, the more expensive it is to maintain. I want to bring this back to change, though, and a world in flux. And here's what's interesting. And I'm oversimplifying. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm oversimplifying a little bit. But the more you have, that means the more you have to maintain and care for and purchase and keeping up with the Joneses gets really expensive. Change hits, and it is really hard to actually shift all of that so that you can sustain you and your family. For Whether it's losing a job, whether it's wanting to try a different lifestyle, the more you have, the harder it is to understand, to comprehend what enough might look like. But when you start with enough, it's really easy to see abundance and to see more all around you. But you don't need to actually, you're not, you're not sort of, what's interesting is I find the more mindset, so much of that is we seek to buy more and have more because we don't feel like we're enough inside. Mm-hmm. But if we actually feel like we're enough inside, all of a sudden you're like, why am I buying all this stuff? Like, like what do I really need? Why do I need to keep up with the Joneses? Because I'm just buying as me. And I've all, and then the big reality, I always have been. It was that old script that told me I was never enough. I was never going to have enough, earn enough, be enough, you name it. And you go, where did that script come from? And those scripts have been written, you know, generation after generation, but not come from a little Jewish mother and a father. And the reality was even in my world, I work with a um, hypnotist now looking at reprogramming my subconscious because Hmm. I had that built into me. It was like plugged in. There couldn't have been a bigger superpower in my life than what did you do for me today and how much money did you earn, right? And for me to unplug that has required that I actually go into hypnosis to uh, to see what the subconscious is doing and how it's rewired that and to understand that I'm totally enough just the way that I am. But my point is, is that's the role everybody has to take. They have to really say, I'm going to unplug it. It doesn't mean that much. I don't know why I bought into it that long, but it's there, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and what I like, I am not saying for a moment, don't have ambition, don't follow your dreams, don't do the best you can. I mean, don't be your best full self. I'm just saying your best full self is not defined by having more. (laughs) It's just, there's a psychology, there's sort of the psychology of more and the economics of more, both of which coming back to- Well, that's FOMO. You you comment about FOMO in the book and you actually cite Greg McKinnon, the author of Essentialism, which, you know, I've seen a lot of documentaries on Essentialism. We see a lot of people in all walks of life going to more Essentialism, right? living a more modest lifestyle. And you you say there where he provides three-step process to unpack FOMO. I think FOMO is really a big deal. Okay. Mm-hmm. I totally do. We're missing out. We don't have enough. This all goes along with the whole enough thing, right? Um, can you explain that to the listeners from your perspective? Yeah. So, and this is a conversation. So Greg McCown, um, who is also a young global leader at the World Economic Forum, that's how I originally met him. He was in conversation with a guy named Patrick McGinnis, Mm -hmm. who is the founder or the, the author of the word FOMO, fear of missing out. 
And Patrick McGinnis came up with this word when he was studying it at Harvard Business School. And he was looking around at his fellow classmates going like, why are we completely manic in our academic and social lives? And so they were in conversation. So it was neat because it was like the expert on essentialism with the expert on FOMO. And what could they, how could they riff together? So the the very simple sort of boiled down version of FOMO, so fear of missing out, this notion of I have to do more because I might miss out on something. Mm -hmm. Um, There's this lovely counterpoint, which you might have heard of, which is JOMO, the joy of missing out. Um, (laughs) But back to to FOMO. So I'm I'm very happy in the JOMO. Like, y'all have a great time. I am actually happy just as I am just now with enough. Um, but hey, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a slight mental tweak, but it makes a big difference, but back to FOMO. So the sort of three-step process that, that Patrick describes and, and Greg listens into is that, you know, the first step is to notice the next time that you're feeling FOMO. So the next time you're like, I should be doing this. I'm not, I need more. And like, and then the second step is ask yourself whether, you know, is this jealousy, some kind of envy, some kind of, I wish that I were I wish I had what this person is, or could it be revealing something deeper that you're called to do? And then the next step is the very, you know, practical sort of easy, take, find time on your calendar in the next week to explore what's going on there. You know, this is a classic case of going inside first. And when you go inside, you discover these fears of missing out are actually driven by something deeper. It's not necessarily jealousy or envy or I'm going to miss out on that. It's telling you something deeper about yourself. And my sense is that when you can get clear and when you make a shift, so to speak, from more to enough, you also make a shift from a sense of FOMO to a sense of JOMO and can actually feel joyful, not doing everything, not feeling fear of not doing everything that everyone else is because you're like, that's not for me. That's more is not necessarily better. I'm actually really good. So long as the things you're doing are things you've picked to do and align with your new script. Well, in the sense is you would, if you're out of that in the Jomo, you are definitely living in the present versus uh, trying to live in the past or the future. I loved your story in the book about getting lost in Romania. You've done lots of world travel. You are um, been everywhere. So congratulations for that. And you were approached by a lady while you were trying to go through these dirt roads and up the hill and um, find somewhere, somewhere, I don't know exactly what it was. And the woman says to you, hey, lady, hey, lady, hey, lady. She keeps calling out to you. And um, can you tell the story and why in the landscape of change, getting lost is how you find your way? Yeah. So it's, it's funny. This I'm reminded of one of the first questions you asked me in terms of some ahas and and my sense of gratitude. So this happened when I was in my twenties and probably one of the biggest shifts of losing my parents and losing them right when I was supposed to enter the real world. Um, And it, my, that sense of like, where was I going to, everyone, society was telling me, you know, with your degree, you should go work on wall street or consulting firm. Um, And I was like, man, if I'm dying tomorrow with all due respect to banks and concern and consulting firms, that is not where I need to be spending my time. So I ended up spending four, almost four years um, without a permanent address, with a backpack, traveling, and I actually guided hiking and biking trips around the world to fund my travels because, again, it wasn't like my parents were gone, so I didn't have any parents saying, you can't do this, you must do that, we expect you to do this, but I had to figure out a way to do it myself. And so I share this because this story happened alongside um, during those four years. And I was in Romania. And I I mean, I was in rural Romania. And I was there. I had learned um, one of my degrees was in art history. And I had learned about these monasteries that had been built um, back in the Ottoman era. And they were covered in frescoes inside and out. Just enormous. But then, obviously, with the Cold War, the Iron Curtain, These frescoes hadn't been seen in centuries. And this was obviously after the Berlin Wall was down and Romania was still early, early stages of of development. And there were no, there were no, there wasn't GPS or anything. So I was totally winging it, but I was there to go find these monasteries and I did find them and they were unbelievable. And you want to talk about something that is very much on the tourist path today in 2021, but it was nowhere close to that 
back um, when I was there. And so, yeah, this lady in this thick, 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 I mean, she's sort of, she didn't speak English, but she spoke enough to say, lady, are you lost? I'm walking along trying to find these monasteries and like the, the windows blast open and this like portly grandmotherly quintessential um, Romanian sort of Eastern European grandmother, like shouts out the window, lady, are you lost? And then she's like, you must be lost. Come in here now. You know, I'm sitting, I'm standing there on this dirt road going like, all right, now what? But what did I have to lose? Right. I mean, this relates to a couple different superpowers, one of which is starting with trust. Um, she wasn't going to harm me. I, I had learned that much in my travels, but I was traveling. I was young. I was solo. I was clearly foreign. And I was, I looked to her like I was way lost. So I kind of took her invitation and I went inside and to make a long story short, I spent the next six hours, eight hours with her family at the meal table, um, learning all about Romanian cuisine and so forth, but also this family and she had kids and grandkids and the grandkids spoke decent English and they were just firing me with questions. Who are you? Where are you from? Why are you here? What are you doing? And what they couldn't figure out was why in the world I was traveling alone. Where's your husband? Where's your husband? <laughs> yeah. 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 And at that point in my life, I, I was not interested in dating. I wanted to be a free, independent spirit. And I was like, how dare you think that I'm only legitimate to travel if I'm with a man? They were just, they weren't me. That's appropriate it. for the culture you came from. Culture, exactly. Exactly. And I, meanwhile, am trying to help them. I mean, it was everything from like, hey, do you guys visit these monasteries? And they're like, no. Right. Yeah. Where I'm like, what do you mean? You're like living in a UNESCO heritage site and they don't even know where they are. And they're like, so, so what? <laughs> we have these totally. What I like is that we were both trying to understand the other with the best of intentions, feeling like what has just landed in my lap in terms of like, it was like meeting somebody from Mars, but everybody was really like genuinely, earnestly excited to yeah. get to know something very, very different. And so what they taught me, and I think what I taught, like it was mutual, this notion of like, for me that day, getting lost, you know, whether or not I actually was, I was, I was very much lost, but I also was in the midst of this life adventure where I felt more alive than I had felt in a long time, traveling and trying to figure things out and piece things together. But, but you know, getting lost is sometimes how you find your way. I know that sounds a little bit trite, but also realizing that the way I define getting lost and the things I struggle with may be the polar opposite of someone else, but we can still learn from one another as we sort through what are we actually lost about? What are the gaps we can help one another fill in? And so I love that story. Oh, yeah. it's a great story in the book. And I, and I kind of, as you're speaking about it, it reminds me of the 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 guy whose ego is so big he won't ask for directions in the car right and the wife is saying well i think you're lost <laughs> you know and he's going no i'm not i'll get there what really you are lost but there is a quite a opportunity in being lost i know what it's like to be lost some of the first things that happen is the emotional feelings you get in the pit of your stomach about where am i but then when you start to look around and see the beauty of where you are many times i've been lost many times on hikes right and that's it can be an eerie feeling because it's like well where am i i'm a little disoriented da, 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 da. Um, but it's amazing when you let go and allow yourself to explore how wonderful that can be and all the new things that you find. And I think that's what you're asking the readers and the listeners and the people that participate is be open to getting lost so that you can explore what is um, versus what it is that you're trying to find. No, just what is, right? To stay in the what isness yeah. of life. Um, and it's so much of it is about new discoveries. Think about, and I mean, this boils down to if you're looking at innovation or how do we figure out this future of work or what do I, how do I shake up my own life? Right. And we have, again, old script, getting lost is failure. Getting lost is you do not want to get lost. That's how you get fired. Getting right. lost is some kind of knock against you. 
And the right. new script is like getting lost is a superpower. Getting lost is actually how you discover new things. It is how you actually cast new horizons. Um, and it was funny, as you were talking, I, I just pulled up a quote. Um, it is in the book, but I was like, it's just so perfect for this particular moment. And it's that, you know, lost, even the word lost, is that seen as negative or positive? I mean, for me, I lost is a good thing. But for a lot of society, you know, lost and loss and failure, these are almost, you know, um, synonyms. But this quote, it's by Rebecca Solnit. She's an author and mapper. She's just a fabulous human being. And she says, you know, lost has really two disparate meanings. Losing things is about the familiar falling away, but getting lost is about the unfamiliar appearing. And I think that when we think about a world in flux and all this change, what we're talking about is a lot of unfamiliarity. But getting excited about what can be learned in that unfamiliarity, using that to actually guide what we do next, as opposed to, no, 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 we only do. And I know we've talked about this before, like humans are hardwired. We like stability and familiarity. I get it. The reality is that is not the future. So insofar as we can appreciate familiarity when it shows up, but get much more comfortable and much more excited about leaning into the unfamiliarity, I think we discover things, including things far better than we might have otherwise imagined or thought were possible. Well, you know, look, uncertainty is very similar. It's just a different word. But the reality is, is that, um, you know, I've been a serial entrepreneur all my life. I've had plenty of failures. I've lost lots and lots of money. We say lost. I didn't lose it. I invested it. And I invested it into my own education and my own understanding. And I think people need to transplant the way in which they reference it because the words you use are very strong. Um, they bring up certain emotions and meanings when you say it. So if you say, well, I didn't have a failure, I had a learning lesson. Uh, from that learning lesson, I invested in my future. My future became brighter as a result of me finding out a way not to do something, right, um, versus a way that I was looking to do something. Now, April, you have a big message conveyed in Flux. I mean, this is it's you cover a lot of topics. You cover psychology. You cover uh, ecology. You cover a lot of things that that need to be talked about. Um, and if you were to leave the listeners with one or two single points, okay, uh, that you would like to have them take away from the book, uh, even take away from our podcast, what would it be and how can they integrate this advice into daily life? Because it's one thing to talk about these big concepts. Um, I see so many authors come on and then I say, how does one grab their arms around it, distill it, bring it down, and then live it. How am I going to live flux? Yeah. Oh, and you just reminded me. One thing I always like to remind people is that flux as a word, it's both a noun and a verb. So the noun means continuous change, and the verb is to learn to become fluid. And I love this because it's sort of like in a world in flux, we need to learn how to flux. And, you know, I, this isn't intended as like a pitch. I'm like, to really know how to wrap your arms around all of this, you do want to read the book because it's way more than I can sum up in one sentence. But the key that I want people to rem remember and really take away is that, I mean, clearly flux in this world and flux, this isn't about any one year. This isn't about any one change. This is about heading into a future that is going to be more and more constant change, which requires a wholesale reshaping of our relationship to change. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, it can be extraordinary. I mean, you want to talk about transformation and life affirmation. Like, it's not a bad thing. It can be an extraordinary thing when you have a flux mindset. So the way you start is wrapping your mind, wrapping your head around, getting to learn, getting to understand better these flux superpowers and beginning to open that flux mindset, that notion that actually there's a better way of relating to change and a more exciting future when I can actually be the author of my own script. So true. And, you know, it's been 
a pleasure having you on the show and getting an opportunity to speak a little bit. Again, you had mentioned places where people can go. There's some free downloads there as well. So fluxmindset.com is one of the places that you want to go to learn about um, the Explorers Club, which is available. And I would say definitely sign up for that. Um, It talks about the flux mindset there and the super or the eight superpowers. You also can learn more uh, about April by just going to April Rennie, dot com. There you'll find some great whimsical things, some pictures of her travels, her uh, handstands. So I don't have a picture of the book, but we will have it up there when the video gets produced and people will be able to see it. April, a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth this morning. Thank you so much and namaste to you for um, being someone who's brought to the forefront a topic which needs addressing by everybody, and that's our scripts. And I think if there's even the eight superpowers are big, uh, the flux mindset is big, but what's really big is really working on your script. Uh, looking at what you're telling yourself um, and how it's being told. And I think if they're going to create positive change for the future, it's rewriting the script and April's helping you rewrite that script. April, thanks so much for being on Inside Personal Growth and spending a few minutes with all of my listeners. Thank you, Greg. Thank you to everyone who's listening. I'm just just delighted to be here. And I hope, I hope you found this. Yeah. Um, flux worthy <laughs> yeah, and fluxiness and, and, and all of that is a lot go, of fun. Riffs. Go pre-order the book on Amazon too. Yes, meant to mention that we'll have a link to Amazon so you can order the book. Thanks April. Namaste Thanks so to you. Much. Bye.